Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! All right, hello. Welcome to the cooking show. This week I'm wearing my glasses so that I sound extra smart. This week we're going to be making an ostrich egg quiche. Oh my God. If you want to make one too, there's a link to where you can buy an ostrich egg if they're in stock and in season in the show notes. And if you want to make a regular quiche and tell everyone that it's ostrich, just substitute 24 chicken eggs. Yeah, the conversion rate there is one ostrich egg equals 24 chicken eggs. Before we start, let's not make any assumptions. What is a quiche? We're basically talking about an egg pie, right? If you look online, if you, if you Google what is a quiche, you may find a description as a savory custard, which doesn't sound quite as good to me. I don't know. I don't know what it is about savory custard that turns me off, but I prefer an egg pie or a baked egg pie. Either way, we're describing a pie crust that's filled with egg and other ingredients like meat, cheese, vegetables, whatever that's baked. Now, overall, this dish is going to take about three hours to prepare, but a lot of that time is just waiting for your dough for the crust to chill in the fridge and rest. It's not like you're going to be spending 180 minutes hands-on making this. This is a very laid-back, easy breezy dish to make over the course of approximately three hours, okay? Now, remember, the show notes are where the real value is. I'll have links to notable ingredients, a full album of photos of each step in the process, and of course, a simple, straightforward recipe with no fluff and no filler. Just the facts, ma'am, right? Check out the show notes in your podcast player or go to thecookingshow.fm and find this episode. You know this is a good idea because I was able to get such a straightforward URL, thecookingshow.fm, right? Because this is The Cooking Show and podcasts are like radio, see? All right. So first off, we need to make a really good crust, right? We're not going to use, I mean, you can use a frozen pie crust, but there's there are like two caveats in this particular case. First, you've got to make sure that you're using a cooking vessel that's big enough to hold an ostrich egg or 24 chicken eggs worth of filling. Your average grocery store frozen pie crust may be a bit shallow for that purpose. So second, this pie crust is so good and easy, we might as well make it homemade, right? The crust is made from only like three and a half ingredients. We'll use two and a half cups of flour, eight ounces of butter, a teaspoon of salt, and between four and eight tablespoons of ice cold water. The salt and water are such a small quantity that you could almost say that this crust is just butter and flour. I used a food processor to make this dough and that certainly does make it go really quick. But if you don't have a food processor, just use a fork to press the butter into the flour. It'll take a little bit longer, but you'll get it done. It's not a big deal. Otherwise, put all the flour into the food processor and then cut up the eight ounces of butter into 
half-inch cubes and put those on top of the flour in the food processor, add the salt, and then give it a few short pulses to sort of incorporate the butter into the flour. What you always want to be mindful of when you're making pie crust or biscuits or whatever is to keep everything really cold. Cold, firm butter, ice cold water, and even cold equipment go like a really long way to getting the texture and the final product that you're looking for. That's why we're going with a bunch of short pulses with the food processor rather than just having it churn through continuously. Because when you let those blades spin for a long time uninterrupted, the friction of like the matter in the bowl creates heat. In fact, like our blender, it's a high powered Vitamix. And there are soup recipes that are heated just via the heat produced from extended blending for whipping that stuff around, having those particles of food whacking into each other that creates enough heat to essentially cook a soup, depending on what the recipe is. So once your flour and butter are incorporated enough to be like in indistinguishable from each other, you can start adding a small amount of water and pulsing to incorporate that. And I started off by making up a half a cup of ice water. I'm not gonna tell you the recipe for that one because it's all right there in the name. And I added that one tablespoon at a time through the feeder hole in the top of the food press processor. What you're looking for there is for the dough to start to come together in more of a solid mass. When it starts to glom together, you take the lid off the food processor and see if you can press the dough and have it hold together. Check the, the photo album in the show notes to see how the dough will look. I mean, it, it looks like dough and you can figure this out. When you have the texture you're looking for, we're going to plop that out onto a cutting board and work it a little bit with our hands. Now, using your hands, like when you're using your hands, make sure you work quickly to avoid heating up the dough. Knead it into a smooth ball, and then you can use a knife or a bench scraper to cut that ball in half and then form both halves into smooth balls. Wrap those up in some saran wrap, put them in the fridge, and those are going to chill for one and a half hours. If you were filling normal size pie plates, you'd use one ball of dough for each pie plate. So this is basically a recipe to make two pies worth of dough, but we're going to use a vessel that can hold an ostrich eggs worth of quiche. So we might need to use some of the dough from the second ball to fill in what we're doing here to, to make the crust. All right. Now, while the dough is chilling, we can get all our vegetables prepared. You probably only need like two whole bell peppers. I used a little bit of four bell peppers because I wanted to get all the colors represented. You know, I wanted this to look pretty. I wanted to take nice pictures. So I had a green pepper, a yellow pepper, an orange pepper, and a red bell pepper. And I used maybe a quarter to a half of each one and added to that one whole onion. I used a yellow onion just because I like the flavor and uh, one whole head of garlic. I don't know, seven or eight cloves of garlic. The peppers I chopped, the onion was diced and the garlic was minced. Now, the distinction between those isn't super important, but that's basically cutting vegetables in descending order from large pieces, which is the chopped, down to the smallest pieces, which is minced. Hold back on doing anything with the tomato until you get to the end. We'll slice that thinly and lay it on top of the finished quiche right before the, the baking process is finished. Now, if you have all the vegetables prepped and you still have some time left waiting for the dough to chill, I mean, it really shouldn't take you an hour and a half to, to chop up some 
some vegetables here, right? So you have some time left to portion out your dry seasonings. I like to use a little ramekins to hold the dry herbs and spices so that you're not measuring things out on the fly when you have a bunch of irons in the fire, so to speak. Before we get to the dry ingredients and their measurements, I do want to point out that I seasoned the vegetable filling for this rather than the egg itself. And this was for a specific reason for this dish. I've never had an ostrich egg before, so I didn't know what to expect flavor-wise. There's a possibility, well, there was a possibility. <laughs> that ostrich eggs taste like magic. So I didn't want to mask whatever that natural flavor of the egg was by stirring in a bunch of strong seasonings. Rather, I seasoned the peppers and the onions so there would be a little bit of contrast between the ingredients that are stirred through the, the quiche and the egg itself. Turns out, though, ostrich egg tastes almost exactly like cassowary egg which ironically tastes exactly like chicken eggs. So uh, go figure, if you want to stir your dry spices into the egg mix itself, go ahead, hit out. But if you do follow that course of action, I would, ex I would suggest bumping up those measurements by about 50%. So if something was two tablespoons, use three tablespoons because you want to incorporate that through this large volume of scrambled egg, essentially. All right, so I only used five seasonings here. We have two tablespoons of pimenton dolce de la vera. Sounds very, very romantic. This is basically just a sweet Spanish paprika. This particular brand, though, is pretty special. There'll be a link to this in the show notes. But when early explorers returned to Spain with the flora, fauna, and also slaves from the New World, one of the things they brought back was chili peppers. Chili peppers potatoes, tomatoes, those are all new world vegetables and foods, right? Those peppers, or rather probably their seeds, were first cultivated in the La Vera region of Spain. And this is a region of Western Spain on the Extremadura Plain. Being closer to Portugal in the coast, the climate is more humid than the Mediterranean regions of Spain, you know, or the deeper interior cities, you know, like Valencia or Madrid. So when the newly cultivated chilies were harvested, they'd often be smoked during the drying process to prevent mold and mildew from growing because it's more humid and foggy in the mornings and in the evenings or whatever. La Vera has been growing and drying these new world cultivars for nearly 600 years at this point, I guess 515 years, more or less. In the tradition and the plant genetics, they trace back to the actual age of exploration, which is really cool. So the paprika, it's a little pricey, but it's super duper special. And it's not like you're using six cups of paprika every week, right? A little bit goes a long way. And this is a really premium product. You can replace this with run-of-the-mill smoked paprika, but I would definitely urge you to splurge on at least a small tin of this really good stuff. The Pimenton Dolce de la Vera. It's a fantastic paprika. It's wonderful. Comes in a little teal blue tin. Looks super fancy and you get a nice little keepsake to put your buttons or your change in afterwards. All right, next up we have some herbs to Provence. Now, generally this is a blend of thyme, sage, rosemary, marjoram, savory, oregano, lavender. You don't have to worry about that. In the show notes, we have a photo album that details each step. And when you get to the dry herbs step, those ingredients in herbs to Provence will be listed. Now, normally you can find this at the grocery store. If you just go down that McCormick aisle, you'll find herbs to Provence. If you can't, 
I assume you have some dry herbs, and I assume that you have some of those ones that I listed there. Use as many of them as possible in equal amounts. The one that really matters, in my opinion, is oregano, followed by some dried lavender. The dried lavender is going to give it a nice floral flavor that really just makes it smell and taste pretty. <laughs> but the oregano is the is the herbal flavor that you're looking for. It's paired very often in Spanish cuisine with the with the uh, smoked paprika. All right, we're going to use two tablespoons of the herbs to Provence. Next up, we've got one tablespoon of tarragon and one teaspoon each of salt and pepper. Now I assume you're getting close to the one and a half hour chill time on that dough. So at this point you should preheat your oven to 350 degrees. We're gonna use the oven twice basically. So preheat to 350 and we're just gonna keep it like that until we're done. We're gonna get some bacon started in a pan. Now I did six thick slices. You can use a little bit more, a little bit less, whatever, but six slices worked out for me. You'll basically wanna cook these to the crispiness that you prefer at the end. It's not like you're you're par cooking this to finish cooking during the baking process. Cook the bacon until you would consider it to be done. And then take them out, put them on a cutting board and let them cool down while you do other things. In the pan of baking grease, start sweating the vegetables that you've chopped up on roughly a medium heat. We're not sauteing these or trying to brown them. We're not going to get like a lot of action in the pan and a lot of sizzle and jumping around. We just want the vegetables to soften up and become a bit translucent. And if you haven't pushed all the vegetables into a big pile after you chopped them up, start with the onion and then add the pepper after a few minutes and then add the garlic last because you definitely want to avoid overcooking the garlic or getting it toasted or browned or anything like that. It'll probably take about 10 to 15 minutes with some intermittent stirring to get them soft and shiny. Now, once you hit that point, you can knock the temperature down to low and hold them at that elevated temperature while everything else comes together. So basically you're sweating these vegetables and once they're translucent and shiny and coated with bacon grease and look delicious and colorful and everything like that, knock the temperature down to low and just let them hang out, okay? Now let's work on that pie crust. Now here's the thing, don't worry too much about this. Don't lose, don't get frustrated, okay? It can be frustrating trying to get dough to do what you want it to. Now the good news is that it's going on the bottom, so nobody's going to care what it looks like. Because this is a butter flour dough, we can work it like Play-Doh. You know, once it's in there, we can press it out with our fingers when we need to. Roll out one of your dough balls into a flat circle. Try to get it pretty flat, but don't, don't work it too hard. We do want to keep it cold. So remember that you have two dozen eggs worth of egg to go into this thing. So we need to use a vessel big enough to hold it all, right? A run-of-the-mill pie pan is probably gonna be too small. I used a 12-inch cast iron frying pan and it just barely held everything. You can use a brownie pan or a cake pan or a corningware dish or whatever. Or, crazy idea, just make two quiches. You know what I mean? Lay your dough circle down in whatever you're using to cook this and use your fingers to sort of smush it out to fill the bottom. And then chances are you're going to need to break out that second ball of dough. Like I said, I used all of one and about half of the other one. You can just tear pieces off and press them into the sides of the pan to make the walls of the quiche crust. Look at the pictures in the album and you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. Once you've covered all the surfaces that you need to with the dough, throw that in the oven, which is preheated, right? 
for 15 minutes. That'll pre-cook the crust and ensure that it finishes up flaky and crumbly the way you want it to be after dumping like a bucket full of egg into it, right? So you want that dough to already be kind of dried out and crumbly and delicious and then baking the egg on top of it so that you're not just working with like a wet soggy dough with a whole bunch of egg on top of it. Now your bacon should be cool by now. So chop that up and scrape it into a pile on your cutting board. Everything's pretty much in place and it just all has to come together. So now we're going to tackle literally the most stressful part of this whole dish, which is getting that dinosaur egg open. If you're going the two dozen chicken egg route, just crack those into a big bowl and ignore this part, right? If you actually did get an ostrich egg, you might be thinking that this is going to be like cracking open a bowling ball. Like, how are you going to do this? I don't think it's practical to crack it on the rim of a bowl or on the counter. So what I did was I used a small hammer and a flathead screwdriver to basically chisel a two or three inch trench across the surface of the egg. The shell's really thick. It's like an eighth of an inch or a sixteenth of an inch thick. And the membrane inside is kind of tough and leathery. So you can afford to tunnel through the shell without worrying about it like shattering and spilling out everywhere. Once I chiseled a three inch trench, I tapped the shell above the trench to create some cracks. And then I peeled those fragments away with my fingers. And after a while, this sort of excavated a hole in the shell, but the membrane was still underneath and it was still intact. You can look at the last photo in the Imager album and see the size of the hole that I created in the shell. Once it was big enough, I used a pair of scissors to cut the membrane and tear it open around the boundaries of the hole that I created, and then dump the contents of the egg into a medium mixing bowl. And let me tell you, this was a big egg. Like, this is a remarkably huge amount of egg inside of this, inside of the shell. And at this point, just beat the egg with a fork until you get a consistent color and texture. This took a little longer and a little bit more vigor than it would with a bunch of chicken eggs. But once once you incorporated it all and got it all blended up, it was it was easy breezy. And if this all happened within the 15 minutes that you put the crust in to pre-bake, at this point you should get the crust out of the oven and set it down and let it cool for a few minutes. And take this time to season the vegetables and mix in the chopped bacon. Basically, everything that is an egg that's going into this filling, mix that all together, get it all incorporated, and you can turn the stove off at that point. Pour your beaten egg into the pan of crust. Slowly spoon in the vegetables and the bacon and try to distribute it fairly evenly, but don't get hung up on trying to have a perfectly uniform distribution. You want like a rustic composition here. Uh, think about it like a marble cake, like veins of vegetables and flavor swirling throughout the egg. Okay. Your oven should still be at 350 degrees from when you pre-baked your crust. So once you have everything put together, carefully slide that into the oven. Depending on the size of your quiche and a variety of other factors, your cooking time will be somewhat variable. Mine took 55 minutes. So plan for between like, I don't know, 45 minutes and an hour. After 25 minutes though, give it a check, you know, look at it, see how it's going, move it around, shake it a little bit, see how wobbly the egg is. Check it again 15 minutes after that. So like you're setting these alarms, like 25 minutes, I'm going to do the first check to make sure that, you know, the oven's working. 15 minutes later, we're going to check it and make sure that it's coming together and it's not browning up too much or anything like that. At about the halfway point, so if you're figuring on 45, 50 minutes, you know, halfway point, like after the first 25 minute check, 
slice your tomato thinly. I, I think I used eight slices. Also, you want to grate some cheese for the top. And I used, I used a sharp white cheddar, but if you want to stick with the vaguely Spanish theme that we have going on here with the paprika and the oregano, manchego would be a great choice also. Now, I used a little bit more than half a cup. The point is not to make something super cheesy. It's not like you want to slice a pizza coming out here with like strings of cheese flowing between your slice and the remainder of the quiche. It's more or less to give it a cheesy cap, a little bit of flavor and appearance, and to hold the tomato in place. When the egg is mostly set up and it looks to be almost done, carefully lay your tomato slices on the top of the egg and sprinkle the cheese on top of that. Once you put the, the tomato and the cheese on top of the quiche, you can turn the oven off and slide it back in, close the door, and let the cheese melt with the residual heat that's going on in the oven. And the tomato will heat through. We're not trying to like dry the tomato out and, and make like sun-dried tomato or anything like that. We just want everything to be equally warm. We want the cheese to be melted, we want it to look beautiful. At that point, take your egg masterpiece out and let it rest for 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, whatever. This is a dense, rich mass of fat and protein with a surprisingly high amount of water bound up in the vegetables. So if you cut into it immediately, you're going to get a big, like billowing outflow of steam and the egg could dry out and get a little tough. So letting it all rest lets that water settle down so that you have a nice consistency. Again, if you want to continue with the Spanish theme, a full-bodied Rioja would pair very well with this. Now I went with a Cabernet Sauvignon and I enjoyed every drop of that. The richness of the egg and the big forward flavors of garlic and bell pepper and paprika. It went really well with a, with a big dry red, but honestly, an acidic white would have been equally delicious. You cannot make a bad beverage choice here, okay? So that's it for this week. Remember, the recipe is in the show notes, as well as a link to the photo album of the whole shebang. There will be a few links in there too off the top of my head. I know we'll need a link to the fancy paprika. And of course, we'll need a, a link to where you can get an ostrich egg online. Uh, oh, and a word on that. I got my egg from Fossil Farms out of New Jersey. I know their ostrich eggs are considered seasonal items. And it just so happens that they are in season right now. And this is mid to late May for reference. I don't know. Uh, how available they'll be, like how many eggs do they actually have? I don't know. I hope you're able to get one. And just to give you some context as to what this costs, the egg itself is $88 and shipping is another 40 bucks. So you're talking about like $130 for the egg portion of this, which certainly is not cheap. Okay. So check the show notes in your podcast player or go to thecookingshow.fm. And until next week, bon appetit.